Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You, you shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. I love the end part there where God says, put my name upon the people of Israel. Kind of in a childish sort of way, it makes me think of a toy story. You know, on the bottom of Woody's foot, what was there on the bottom of Woody's foot? Andy. Andy. And they took great pride in having Andy's name on Woody. It's like, this is who I belong to. This is my person. And that's what God does for his people. And I love these verses. And one thing that's obvious about them is that they are a blessing that all of us want to receive. But the main object or the objective for Aaron was that you bless the people with this. Uh, you probably had times where someone has been in your company and you were very sad that they died. They brought blessing. They energized you. And you were like, as long as they're here, I'm just, I'm just sucking this up. This is really great. I love their presence. But how many of you have also had somebody, when they left, you went, oh my goodness, I'm glad. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. You wouldn't say that, but you were drained because the countenance, they just sucked it from you. They were not a blessing to you. They were something else, and you could fill in what that might would be. But, but it's the idea that when you're with somebody, when you leave them, you have either blessed them or less than blessed them. And what God is saying to Aaron is, this is what you are to do to other people. You bless them with this blessing that I'm going to give you, and that is the way that you should be everywhere you go. So that as a Christian, we can apply it to ourselves, just like the children of Israel, we are to be a blessing to people. Nothing less than that. And as we move in our life, there's a couple things that, that we want to look at this blessing. And then we're going to look at conflict and give you a few things about conflict because um, I have a feeling Christians get in conflict with each other. I've never experienced it, but I've heard it's true. Uh, we don't always get along. Uh, and, and we can find ourselves in conflict with the world around us who right now seems to be thriving on that. Conflict seems to be what people look for sometimes. Something to be against, somebody to bash, somebody to hit. Uh, so this is our journey. And the first thing about this portion of scripture, I want to look at the origin of this blessing. Where does it come from? And that's your first line. And this is, it says, the Lord bless you and keep you. This isn't just any old blessing that just happens to come about. This is from the God of the universe. This is from God Almighty, who is blessing from his power seat, from his kingdom, but he's also blessing up close and personal. He's bringing all that he has to the table in this blessing. He's shouting from eternal glory, and the king of glory is the one who wants to do the blessing. Now, I don't know if, about you, but I went in on that. If the king of glory is going to lavish blessing, I want to be on it, but I also would like to be used by men to turn that and reflect that blessing. The second thing to notice 
is the, and I know this isn't proper English, I'm sorry if you're an English teacher, the Eunice of the blessing. Eunice. In other words, underline, and you see them there, all the places where it says you. It's focused on blessing other people. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. So as we're looking at reflecting God's countenance, we need to love and cherish other people. Constantly in our mind needs to be the thought as I live my day, I need to be a blessing to you, to you, to you. It's the unity. The content of it, and I'm just going to go through this quickly because we have a lot of ground to cover. Um, but it says here, the Lord bless you and keep you. That means seek the highest and greatest good now and always. The Lord bless you and keep on blessing you. Many times humanly when we do something nice for somebody else, and then we do something nice for them again, we're just kind of sit back and say, okay, it's your turn now. Your turn to bless me. The idea here is God in his blessing blesses and keeps blessing and keeps giving it, whether the blessings return or not, whether we respond, God in his loving kindness keeps the blessings coming. His face to shine upon you. The approving smile of God. Some of you know if you have a child and you, know, you kind of smile and give them a, a look and they say, hey, mommy, dad, look at what I just did. And you give the approving smile what it does for the child. It's like, wow, that was awesome. That was wonderful. Uh, that, that just does something. And it's so true for God Almighty. And it's interesting, that word face there is really plural in Hebrew. It's made God's faces shine upon you. In other words, all the different aspects of God, may they shine upon you. You have seen him strong. Maybe you've seen him compassionate. Maybe you've seen him helping you in a time of need. You may have seen him in his joy and his, his grace, his forgiveness. Every one of those faces, may every part and aspect of God shine down upon you. Uh, Charles Spurgeon once said, a look of approval from God creates a deep, delightful calm within the soul. To know that I have God's approval brings calmness. May he be gracious to you. It means be merciful, compassionate, favorable, generous, inclined towards you. It's kind of like when somebody is special to you and you kind of lean over and you talk to them. Or you talk to them face to face. He may be gracious. He may weigh in. You know, we say, have you weighed in on, on what they've done? Have you thrown your weight in for them? That's the idea of graciousness here. Is that God is weighing in. And part of this graciousness is a stooping in kindness as you would to a small child. If you ever had a child, you know, like a treat for them. You don't like pull the treat up here and say, okay, jump, come on, I got, I got a lollipop. See if you can grab it and just laugh because they can. You stoop in kindness. You go up to the child and you get down on their level and you do the face-to-face -face kind of thing and you bless them with what you want to give them. That's the picture of graciousness. Lift up his countenance, his faces upon you. This is the request for favorable circumstances, relief from trouble and danger. It's the closeness and presence like the eyes in the mouth of somebody when you really have something important to say. And you can picture a couple 
who are in love with each other. Um, and, and, and it's nouveau. It's all romantic. And they kind of look at each other real close and they talk real close to each other. And that's all there's notes in the mouth and it's just like, I love you. <laughs> I love you. And, and you see that thing going back and forth. This is the idea that his countenance lifted up upon you so that he's close, his presence is there. We use the expression, I need some FaceTime. I need FaceTime with you. And this is the picture behind this, that he lift up his countenance in closeness to you and give you FaceTime with God Almighty. And then finally, he says, give you peace. Now, when we think of peace, we think of the absence of conflict. You know, two people aren't fighting, ah, it's peace. The kids have finally stopped fighting, and it's quiet, so we have peace. It's a whole lot more than that. I took a couple of the uh, lexicons and just grabbed some of their definitions here. But you have to see how big this word really is. It's the idea of peace, prosperity, an intact state of favorable circumstances, completeness. This, this, is, this is a hard one, but listen to it. The state of a, of a totality of collection of safeness. Okay? It's a intact state of favorable circumstances, completeness, the state of a totality of collection of safeness, salvation, a state of being free from danger, having health, a state of lack of disease and wholeness or well-being, satisfaction, contentment, the state of having one's basic needs and more being met, and so, therefore, being content. Bliss. That is the blessing. God is saying, Aaron, you tell this to the people. This is what they need. This is the blessing that should be passed from person to person to person. That is reflecting God's countenance. I've been listening a little bit every week. Uh, President Martin nominated Steve Jones has like a little thing he gives to pastors to help encourage them during this COVID time. And it's kind of realizing, it's hard to realize they're always number. You know, we're over six months now into this whole pandemic. And it seems like, wow. And then as we look down the aisle, sometimes we wonder how long. And it could be still a while before things could get back to normal, if normal ever returns in the way that we're moving. And we live at a time right now, and he shared some of these things. And I kind of want to share them with you as well, because I think they're very appropriate. Uh, where there's tension everywhere. People in our country have rarely been so focused on their own viewpoints on a whole multitude of different issues. So as a result, a portion, a good portion of our population are looking for allies, somebody to be on their side. And by doing so, they are dividing people into camps. You for this, you against this. And if you're not for it, you are against it. There's no middle ground. Uh, and, and they're asking these kind of questions. Are you for what I believe? Or are you against what I believe? And this is why I'm wearing my, my jersey. We as humans love teams. We love to be identified with something. So if you get a group of people together and they start to play a game, they'll often say, well, let's make teams. Why? Because someone's going to win. And some of lose. We love to be associated with sports teams. If you know someone else who likes sports, one of the first questions, what's your team? 
Because we want to be associated and win. We want to have the best team. Did you ever notice, like, at football games, like, people hate themselves? They do stupidest things you could ever imagine for the team. It somehow gives us identity. Like, we win because they win. Or, or we're maybe sometimes just cheering for a team we know is going to lose just because we're loyal. But it's an identity. It, it's who we belong to. And teams are everywhere. There's clubs for this and that. You go online and just look up clubs. You can find a group or a team for almost any interest. You see, humanly, we just do that. We, we pick sides. We want to be on a team somewhere. It gives us representation. And you could do a whole psychological analysis about why we love teams so much, why we want to be identified by something. And in that teamness, which maybe doesn't have to be there, often it deteriorates to us against that. And when it does, conflict comes in, whether it's on a global scale, a national scale, or in your very home. The conflict that comes in is less than the blessing that God desires us to give. In our culture right now, uh, people are walking on eggshells in almost every conversation, trying not to inadvertently fall into the against category. What is, did I say that right? Did I use the new term for this because the accident have the old term and it just comes out and I said the wrong thing and oh my goodness, not mad at me because they just lumped me into this team over there because I didn't say it the right way. I wasn't as politically correct as that group is. And conflict comes about. Still others are out there itching for arguments. They're glad to come across someone with an opposing viewpoint. It doesn't matter what the topic is. It could be politics. It, the upcoming elections, the media, it could be peaceful marches, it could be violent protests, it could be the pandemic, it could be mass, it could be in-person meetings, virtual meetings. The list is endless right now where people just get into it and they fight about it and they divide over it and it has become a big issue. Everyone has opinions and there are so many divisive topics right now in our society. The likelihood of finding anybody who thinks exactly like you and dots their I's and crosses their T's the way you do is pretty slim. The church is not immune from these kind of tensions. There are churches that I hear of where there's shouting matches because of masks. Shouting matches because of how they're going to come together and how they're going to meet. But a lot of times, and more commonly, it's a quiet little flare where people get into it with each other, sort of quiet, but it all of a sudden threatens the fabric of good old friendships, of friendships that have been there for a long time because conflict just comes in and it seems like it's more now than it has been in a long, long time. So we have to kind of stand back, take a good look, and say, what do we think about this strange and contentious times that we find ourselves? How do we navigate them as a child of God? For some, they kind of taken a posture of Romans 14, 22. And it says that, that whatever you believe about these things, keep it between yourself and God. Just don't talk to anybody. Then you can't fight with them. Just keep it all inside. Where others feel free to express their convictions and are willing to part company with someone because the issue in question has become so important to them. So the question that each of us needs to ask individually of ourselves 
in this time is what is my highest goal when it comes to other people? What's the number one thing? What is the most important? And I love what it says in Ephesians chapter 4. When Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing up with one another in love, eager, and I want to highlight that word, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I think that's a pretty good goal. I think it's something very nice to put at the very top of the list. What do I want for other people? What should be my goal? It should be to bless you. That when I leave your presence, you have been blessed because I have reflected in our conversation, in our time together, the Spirit of God Almighty. Eager means, I know, well, some translations say, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. That's not really strong enough. This is an effort that's put forth to make haste. Run to go do this. Run to keep the unity of the Spirit. Uh, take care. Do your best. It speaks of a determined effort. For in my, my um, dealings with other people, I run to keep the unity of the Spirit. I do my best. I work really, really hard at it. And I'm going to quickly give you four levels of conflict that kind of explain what happens when we start to get into it with somebody else. And how we can kind of back ourselves out of that. The first level, and you see this kind of conflict all the time, it's my opinion disagrees with your opinion. How many of you, if I said hunting is the greatest thing in the world, how many of you would raise your hand? I love to go hunting. How many of you would say hunting is the last thing in the world that I would ever want to do? And some of you might be in between. You see, our opinion differs. But I don't feel any compulsion to argue with you that you need to love hunting the way I love hunting. It's okay. We disagree. That's level one. This level of conflict happens every day. You like chocolate. I like vanilla. You want moose tracks. Somebody says, I don't like ice cream. Now, I may think there's something wrong with that person, but I don't argue with them. I don't have bad feelings at all. We disagree. It's normal to hold different viewpoints from others. That is not a sin. But it can lead to one if I don't handle it right. Second level of conflict. It's because my opinion disagrees with your opinion. I don't really like you anymore. I am mad at you. I have a bad emotional feeling response towards you because you disagree with my opinion. Now this can be sin. It may not necessarily be sin. We can kind of rein it back in at this point. It's kind of debatable when we start in a disagreement to jump into the area of sin towards another uh, this is, though, when it becomes personal. When the ability to just disagree and discuss the disagreement becomes a little bit emotional, becomes personal. Uh, we can't always help how we feel, but we can kind of pull ourselves back and we feel ourselves starting to get personal. If we indulge these feelings instead of taking them to the Lord for cleansing, you can kind of slide into what's called the third area of conflict, where it's stated something like this. I don't like you so much that I have decided that I want to win and I want you to lose. It's become very intentional at this point. Uh, almost no one 
would actually come out and say that, although sometimes we do. But the, 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 this kind of conflict is I don't like you or I admit at you or whatever feelings I have, they are so intense now that I've decided that I'm going to win and you're going to lose. Uh, by this time, we're definitely talking about sin, whether we admit it or not. Level one, situational. Level two, starts to get emotional. It's about feeling that you, the feelings you have towards another person. But by level three, we intentionally take action. We do something to make sure we win and the other person loses. Since you don't want to lose, deciding to make sure that they lose is simply sin. Blessing is no longer the thing I want for you. I want you to be defeated. I want you to see that I am right. And this kind of conflict cripples people, destroys families, cripples relationships. The progression of conflict up to this point, you could say it this way. Since my opinion differs from your opinion, and as a consequence, I don't like you anymore right this moment. You have decided that I want to win, and I want you to lose. And that's when words start to fly, accusations, names get called, because I have to posture myself to defeat you. Listening to these voices sometimes lead to the worst kind of conflict in level four. And that's because I don't want you to lose so much, I am willing to lose myself in order to make sure that you lose. And that's when conflict just goes crazy and goes off the rails into the worst possible place. This becomes devastating and lethal. This is when a person we hear in the news sometimes will kill their family, then point a gun to themselves and end their own life. They wanted the other person to lose so bad that even if they lost in the process. It's the kind of thing where a person would fly a plane into a skyscraper because that, that conflict has become so much and the desire to see somebody else lose, it doesn't even matter if I lose myself. This kind of conflict doesn't have to necessarily result in murder or in devastation and destruction. See, some people are so, are so intent on seeing somebody else lose, they're content to ruin a church, even if it means ruining their own reputation in the community. And I've lived through that in the past. I've seen a church conflict get so big and, and so nasty that the person's reputation, everyone that looks at them sees, you know what, they're a troublemaker. There's nothing loving and kind about them. Yet they got their way in the church split and they won but they lost. There are people that do that within families. Families that have been together for years and years and years have so much vested into it and then you hear, you know what? Somebody just took off. They've lost everything, but they wanted the other person to lose too. So in all of that, they come out on the bottom, but for some reason they think that they won in some strange kind of way because they inflicted the damage on the other person that they wanted. Level four is the epitome of Satan's desire to wreak havoc and devastation on a person, family, church, or a nation, where I will create a horrible situation even if it bites me back in order for you to lose. 
So when we look at these levels of conflict, you probably can think, you know, I've seen that in my family, I've seen that in my church, I've seen that with this relationship, I see this in our nation, where people just go down a slippery slope of division and conflict with each other. So why is the absence of this kind of conflict so important? And I think we can probably see it just on the surface, but I want to talk about that a little bit. I want to give you two reasons why conflict needs to be taken out of our life. Not disagreement, we're always going to disagree. But letting conflict become personal, where we uh, go at it with the idea of defeating somebody else. The first one, and you can put this in your notes, that we are God's letters of recommendation. We are his letters of recommendation. And we are to reflect him on obscure. Now this is probably one of the most weighty job descriptions that anyone could ever have. And listen to this 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation. Written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ. Delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. I am, you are, God's recommendation letter to the world around us. Now when you think about a letter of recommendation, you think about all the things that want to point to why something is true, why something is right, why something is worth your while. If I were going to write you a letter of recommendation for your new job, you may not even want me to tell the truth. You might want me to say the things that are going to get you. You want the good stuff out there. You don't want the whole story. When you're a letter of recommendation, you don't want anything to cloud or obscure. And that is the job description of believers, is that we are, as I go into a conversation and meet somebody, Anytime, anywhere, I'm on a letter of recommendation. I'm telling you why you need Jesus. I'm showing you why you need God. And if something's in my life that's obscuring it, maybe I'm in, I, I work and I have a job and I complain the whole time just like everyone else, something's obscuring. Maybe in my job I cheat a little, I'm a little lazy, Jesus is obscuring. You can go into all kinds of things that look ruined, that letter of recommendation, that take away from it. You see, as Christians, we want our lives to be so focused and clearly pointing to Christ that nothing, any kind of conflict, will come in and obscure who Jesus is. That's number one. So, I'm his letter of recommendation. Some, and it's been said kind of in a, uh, a saying kind of thing that your life may be the only gospel some people, or only Bible some people will ever read. If they're going to get their picture of Jesus from you, what are they reading? Somebody's going to fight it. Somebody's going to argue. Somebody's going to embarrass themselves on social media because they believe so strongly about something. You see, when this starts to happen, all of a sudden I'm not glorifying God. I've taken his letter of recommendation and said, well, wait a minute, let me talk a little bit here. I got something to say to you. I'm going to tell you what I really think. And I'm going to tell you what you need to think. And this is why you should lose conflict totally obscures the message of the gospel. The second reason why these conflicts need to be put aside and not part of us at all is that we are representatives of the glories 
of the new covenant. And as you read through 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and I encourage you to do that today, uh, there's pictures here of how wonderful the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ truly is. It says in verses 7 and 8, Now if the ministry of death, that's talking about what Moses and the Ten Commandments of the law, basically it showed people that they are not good enough to get to God, neither could they ever hope to be good enough. That's the ministry of death, carved in letters of stone, the Ten Commandments, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of his glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have more glory? Now, you have to get a picture here of Moses. And if you read through the whole account of Exodus 34 and the giving of the law, you had a mountain that was on fire with thick clouds. And you saw the glory of God meet with Moses. I mean, this was an awesome experience. This was something that struck fear into the whole nation. This whole, there was a certain glory about the giving of the law and God with them. And when Moses came down, it said this was so glorious that his face had even shown. Now, I usually picture that as Moses just glowing. You know, that he ate too much phosphorus. And he's glowing. He just kind of looks eerie, like you put a flashlight up to your face. You know, that kind of glowing. Like, oh, that looks strange. That's not what the Bible says in the original language. It says when he came down from the mountain, Aaron, his own brother, was terrified of him, scared to death. Because the idea of shown here is a word that's not used in much of the scriptures anywhere else but here. It's the idea that he was emitting sharp rays of light. It's used of a bull's horn that comes and looks and focuses at you. So when Moses came down and his gaze came over, it's like beams of light were penetrating the people that he was looking at. This isn't just a little glowing. Uh, this is massive. Now, I, wish I, I wish I could be like that. I mean, I want to be able to come into your presence and when I say something to you, look at you and just have all these beams shooting you because you're going to listen to me. You're going to think, wow, this guy's got it. You know, it's like power and all this glory. And it could go to Moses' head. It's like, you know what? When I talk, you're going to listen. If not, I'm going to look into your soul with my eyes and my beams and, and get these horns pointed right at you. And you're going to melt the fire. That wasn't Moses. Moses, I don't put a veil on my face. Why? Because I don't want anybody staring at this glory. Because this glory of the old covenant pales in comparison to what they will have someday when the Messiah comes. When Jesus comes, the big glory comes. It's like some of you, I know some of you still eat Spam. Anybody eat Spam still? You know, a little candy that nobody even really knows what it comes from. It's just this candy. I know Ron eats it, so I'm not going to talk about that. You know, it's like, would you rather have Spam or a T-bone? Don't stare at the Spam. Look at Jesus. He's the T-bone. That's what Moses is saying. He put a veil on his face so people wouldn't get caught up in the glory of the moment, knowing that there was a great glory to come. And that is the new covenant. That is the letter of recommendation that we're supposed to have to the world around us. And when we get into conflict, we say, Jesus, it's not about you anymore. It's all about me. When I get home, I'm going to get into it with my wife. I'm going to get into it with my kids. We're going to fight because I'm going to win and I know they're wrong. And all of a sudden, that letter of recommendation says, Look at me. Look at me. Don't look at him. Because I'm going to win and you're going to lose. 
when that creeps in to families or churches, we lose the distinctiveness that is ours because of Jesus Christ. He is the Lord. Conflict robs him of all of that. And I just want to quickly tell you a little bit about my journey. I'll just take a couple minutes. And this is where I'm going to get political. This is where I'm going to tell you who you ought to vote for this year. I'm going to tell you what you need to do as far as politics are concerned. See, I was raised in a Republican home. Very Republican. Everything about it was conservative. In fact, if you were, can I not say Democrat, Republican at the same time? If you were a Democrat, you were a second-class citizen. In fact, just maybe, you weren't really a Christian. Because God loves Republicans. And God is a Republican. And this is a Republican country. And God loves this country and, and more than anywhere else. And it was almost as if there was this, this melding together of Christianity with political ideology. And it was ugly. But I didn't know how ugly it was. Because everybody in our church was Republican. So it was like a mutual admiration society. So we could walk in there and there wouldn't be conflict because we would just demean those that didn't even come to our church. And, and our position was of superiority and that God is our Republican. Can you feel how ugly and judgmental that is? But that's how I grew up. And, and it wasn't until my world got a little bit bigger that I realized that I was also pretty Baptist. Too. I was very Baptist growing up. And, and, and I'm still Baptistic. But a couple of realizations came into my heart and life when I stepped outside of my little bubble world that was all Baptistic and all Republican. And I came across Christians who loved God. And they were Democrats. Like, this doesn't happen. And then I found out not everybody loves Baptists. I couldn't believe it. And not everyone is dying to be one. And I'm, just, and I'm not making fun of Baptists. I am very Baptistic. But I had this little world that God just blessed everyone who looked and acted just like me. But you know, I knew Democrats who were just as serious about voting for the Lord as I was. And they stacked everything up and they looked at their values. And they came up here and I came up here. And who was I to be so sure that God loves Republicans and does love them? And that started to break my world a little bit to say, you know what? If they're praying just as hard as I am, and, and, and they land in a different place, I'm going to handle that. What do you do with that? Is there conflict? Do I go fight with them? Because if God loves Republicans and doesn't really love Democrats, I'm not just kind of tolerates them, then they need to, to lose. I need to win. I need to defeat them. You know, God doesn't pick a team. God doesn't pick a political party. God is the party. He is the side. And he says, you know, who's on the Lord's side? You come over here. I'm not, that's not saying I'm an American. And I don't think I'm not patriotic. I love our country. And I love our freedom. But I hate sometimes what the church does between the politics and the religion kind of thing. Because all of a sudden, that picture of Jesus that I'm supposed to to, to be showing gets obscured because I want to fight somebody. I want to demean somebody else. So all of a sudden, entering into my life was a great deal of humility. And a lot of this 
didn't really start until we actually moved up here to Northern Michigan. And, and a lot of humility, a lot more love, and a lot less fighting with other people, or wanting to fight with other people. Because I realized, you know, I'm not a prophet. Any prophets here today? Just one, and if they're wrong, they get stoned. Okay, like that five cents. And I don't mean drugs either. Okay? Tell me you're a prophet, it's not a big thing to do unless you can back it up. Because I used to be like, you know what, if that other party gets in, this world will fall apart, and America will crumble within two years. This will happen, this will happen, this will happen. Do you know that? Do you really know that? I remember one person got into office that I was so upset about, I wanted to move out of the country. I did. I want to go to Brazil. Now, if you don't think about Brazil, that's a lot worse of a government than we have. But I was like, I'm, I'm out of here. Because this is going to happen. This is going to happen. This is happening. Four years later, you know what? Still preaching the gospel. Still have the same freedoms. And I was like, in my arrogance, I was so consumed that this had to be the right person. It has to be this way. Because I believe it. God's my father. God will do what he wants to do through whomever he chooses to do. And I need to be humble enough to realize at the end of the day when I have prayed and I have put all of my values up there and I have prayerfully chosen the best candidate, I could still be wrong. God doesn't do things because it's the way I have come to the conclusion. God says, you know what, you might say, no, man, you got a tiny little brain. And all of this, you're leaning on your own understanding. Because from your perspective, yes, that seems the obvious choice. But guess what? I'm going to this guy. Because I'm going to sift this country. I'm going to judge this country. Or maybe I'm going to bless this country in a way that you couldn't even begin to imagine. So who would you to divide and get into conflict? Now, this doesn't mean I don't talk about um, issues as they relate to the scripture, but I will never again align myself with any particular party unless it's the kingdom of God, unless it's Jesus Christ, because he is the one that I am to reflect unobscured. And I know if I tell some people, you know, I'm not a Republican anymore, I'm a Democrat. How many Republicans won't listen to me anymore? Or if I said, no, after all this, I'm sorry, Jesus, I'm about to be a Republican again. Now the Democrats might judge me and not listen to me. I don't declare an allegiance. And that's what happened with Jesus. They wanted to get him to declare a party. Jesus, who are you? Are you a zealot? Do you, do you support Israel? you part of us? Are you part of Rome? And that's what they tried to trick him. And we're not going to take the time to read it, but in Mark chapter 12, that's all they wanted Jesus to do and make a political statement. You know, do we pay taxes to Caesar? Or don't we? And Jesus says, and he takes the coin. This is pictures on that. Caesar's. Why put me to the test, he asked him. Whose likeness? Caesar's. Render to Caesar the thing that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. He said, you're not putting me. I'm not going to put an allegiance to any party here on earth. That's so paltry. Are you serious? There's something bigger going on here. It's my kingdom. You render to God the things that belong to God. And I'll start to think about that. What belongs to God? Anybody breathing out there still? Where'd that breath even have come from? God. Every heartbeat that you have belongs to God. 
Yes, you gotta pay taxes. Yes, you need to be a good citizen. Please don't misunderstand. But when it comes to your life, there's an allegiance to the kingdom of God that needs to come way above any political affiliation, any alignment myself that would detract from the glory of God and from his message. And I started asking myself the question in this area, what do I want to be known by? How well I can do a political fight? Those Facebook posts that I can make that really trash that other side or extol some human. What do I want to be known by? What alignment do I want to have? Do I want people to unquestionably know that the kingdom of God is what's most important to me? And I ask myself, what am I giving airtime to in my speech and in conversation? Doesn't mean you can't talk about politics. You can do it without sending more power to you. But it means that at the end of my conversation, is the solution voting for an individual or is it the Lord Jesus Christ? That's when I know I'm talking the right way. So at the end of a whole issue that I'm talking about, I'm not coming to a person to vote for, I'm going to come to a person to live for. A person who transcends all of that and in fact controls all of that. Bible says, don't you guys know that the hand of the king, or the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord? And he's going to turn whatever way he wants. Now, might have made some of you angry. Some of you might be saying amen right now. All I'm really pleading for is people who madly love Jesus Christ and want his, their allegiance to be to him so that when people look at them, they don't see conflict. They don't, they don't see conflict in us that securing him. They see him and him alone. Am I saying don't vote? It's not important. Who cares? No, I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is let your life be about Jesus Christ. Talk about issues, but don't align yourself so strongly with the party. I would hate when I die to be laid out in front of everybody and anybody walk by and say, he was such a good Republican. He was such a good Democrat. He could really argue politics better than anyone else. No, I, I want them to come by and say, that man loved Jesus. That man pointed to Jesus in his life, in his family, and every place that he went. My prayer is that you say the same thing. Because there is no other answer for our country than Jesus Christ. And you can, you know, and I'm not against these things, you can get your picket signs up and you can protest and you can do this and you can do that. But if you're substituting that for the prayers of the living God, you've lost track of what's going to make our country change. It is by the prayers of God's people that anything happens. It is because of the love of Jesus Christ in our hearts shown to them that could bring about healing in our country. What's the problem with big hot pot today? Racism? Guess what that gets on? In the prayer closet with Jesus Christ saving his life. And you can go through every social ill and everything, abortion, the greatest plight on anything. Where do you solve that? When people's hearts come to Jesus Christ and they see the value of life 
And if I'm giving airtime to my politics, I'm not giving airtime to the Savior. And if I already put the two together, you know what? I do a whole lot more of this than I do praying or I do sharing Christ. That's where our allegiance is. Father, I pray in your church, this election time and every time, points to you so that everything we say or do is not obscure in any way. And that I'm not in conflict and just fighting with people and I'm determined to win. Father, we know in the end you win. Help us to be reflecting you in a loving way in this very tumultuous world that we live in. People want us to choose sides all the time. They can choose you. In Jesus' name.